Hebrews chapter 7, and our text this morning will be verses 11 through 22. We're continuing to look at the priesthood of Christ. That is the major theme of the book of Hebrews. As we begin to look at this passage this morning, it begs the question, why do we need a priest? It might seem like an odd question to ask why we need a priest, but it is a question that's actually very relevant to us because if you look at almost every culture, every people group in existence of almost all places of the world, there is some priest that exists. Why is that? Well, everywhere you go, man worships. Whether they have the Word of God, they worship. They worship something. And usually in every single people group, in every place that you find, even in the farthest reaches of the world, there will be some form of gathering of religious worship with the holy man there in the center of it. With people worshiping. The idea of a priesthood is quite natural to us. In fact, I would say the idea and the need of a priest is embedded upon our heart. Why is that? Well, you see a very clear picture of things in the beginning, in the Garden of Eden, where worship was taking place, that man was created to worship. And you see that fellowship that God had with Adam in the garden in Genesis 3, verse 8. It says, And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And we know that that verse reveals that they hid themselves from God, for they had sinned against God. They had, instead of worshiping the Creator, began to worship the creation. And that's actually the difference between every culture group and those that have the Word of God between Christians and non-Christians, is that the Christian worships the God of the Bible, and the non-Christian will worship the creation. And man has been striving for some form of worship. As soon as Adam was kicked out of the Garden of Eden, you see he has two sons, Cain and Abel. Abel worships God according to God's word. Cain decides to worship God in a perverted manner. And thus he goes his own way. And you see a whole entire line throughout the Bible of Cain of people worshiping God according to their own means, with their own holy men, with their own priests, and their own way of approaching God. It's embedded in the human heart to worship. And because it's embedded in the heart of every human being, and because God's law is written upon the heart of every human being, we know we fall short of God. And therefore there comes this desire of a priest. God in His Matchless grace calls a people out to himself, calls Abraham and his children to follow him and to know him. And he then makes a way for God himself to meet with his children. In fact, he has Moses build an, uh, a sanctuary, a tabernacle, so that they can meet with God. And we read in Exodus 25, verse 22, Therefore I will meet with you. God makes a way to meet with His people. And as He does this, He establishes a priesthood. 
But what we see as we follow the line of this priesthood all the way through the Old Testament, we continually see that priest after priest after priest fells. In fact, you read in Ezekiel, the sad testimony, that the presence of God departs from the temple for good. We read in Ezekiel 10.18, the glory of the Lord went out from the threshold of the house and stood. That was the departure of God's presence from the temple And that presence does not return until the Lord Jesus Christ walks into the temple. Man is a worshiping person. All of mankind worships something and all of mankind wants some sort of person to mediate on their behalf because they know they're not worthy. It's naturally revealed to all of mankind and it's specially revealed to us our need in the Word of God. And in the Old Testament, a priest was given to mediate between God and man through sacrifice. That mediation is still necessary. For the nature and the required standard to be in God's presence has not changed. Because sin entered the world, there has become a barrier between us and God which necessitates some sort of mediation, some intercessor, someone to stand on our behalf to restore a broken relationship. So again, to belabor the point, the necessity of a priest is is, is apparent and obvious. As we've seen, God gave priests in the Old Testament, and the Jewish people relied upon these priests. They relied upon the law that governed and instructed the priests and what the priests were supposed to do. And as we come to the book of Hebrews, we see a group of Jewish Christians, as they begin to face difficult times, as they begin to face persecution and suffering, they they look away from Christ and His perfect priesthood, And they're tempted to go back to the Old Testament system. And so this morning, just been picking up from where we were last week, we're looking at answering the question, specifically, why is Jesus a better priest? We saw last week that Jesus is a better priest because He is the perfect priest. His work brings perfection. Whereas the Old Testament priest was imperfect and could not bring perfection. The law that prescribed the sacrifices in priesthood, we saw that it was temporal. It was insufficient. It was only a picture. It was a shadow. It was a type of what was to come. But it in and itself was not the substance. It was a shadow, but not the reality In fact, the Old Testament system could not actually accomplish the presence of God with His people. And so the argument of Hebrews from chapter 1 all the way through chapter 13 is this, is Christ is a sufficient priest. Christ is a better priest. Christ has enacted a better covenant. The faith that we have in Christ is better. 
Now, sufficiency means that something is enough to meet the standards required. That's what sufficiency means. If something is enough to meet the standards required, meaning if something is sufficient, you don't need anything else. It's sufficient to accomplish that which it's supposed to accomplish. So to say that Christ is sufficient means this, Christ is enough. Let me ask you this morning, before we even get into the text of Scripture, in your heart, is Christ enough? To say that Christ is enough, to say that Christ is sufficient, is to say that Christ meets the standard that God requires. God requires perfection of holiness. He requires perfection of faith. He requires a perfection of trust. He requires a perfection of obedience. He requires a perfection to do all of His will. He requires it 100%. To say that Christ is sufficient to say is to say that he perfectly was obedient, that he was perfectly faithful, that he was perfect in his trust of his heavenly Father. Christ is sufficient. We fell on every single one of those. And the beauty of our great high priest is this, is that Christ meets those standards and applies his own obedience, he applies his own perfection to those who by grace, through faith, have trusted in him. Christ is a sufficient priest. He's a better priest because he's a perfect priest. And as we saw last week, the law could never do that. But rather, the law exposes in our heart our own inability of perfection and our need of a perfect representative. And so this morning, as we come to the text of Scripture, the next argument that answers why Jesus is a better priest is because he is a forever priest. He is an eternal priest. His priesthood does not end. And so let us hear the word of God. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 11. Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek, rather than one named after the order of Aaron? For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. For the one of whom these things are spoken belong to another tribe, from which no one has ever served at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, and in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priest. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest, not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. For it is witnessed of him, you are a priest forever, after the order of Melchizedek. For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness, for the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. And it was not without an oath. 
For those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. But this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. This is the word of God. I mean, he blessed the reading of it. We'll be primarily looking at verses 15 through 17 this morning. And we see two lines of argumentation. First is the evidence that Jesus is a better priest. And then the second, the testimony of God's word confirms that Christ is a better priest. You notice it begins in verse 15 with this, is that this becomes more evident. Well, what becomes more evident? That Christ is the better priest. The book of Hebrews is about how everything is better in Christ. And so the Word of God says, this is evident. It's more evident. And the whole argument becomes in these verses is that it's evident because Christ is eternal. The King James Version says this, it's far more evident. Other translation says it's clearer still. In other words, this truth that Christ is better is supposed to be clear and supposed to be a thing of clarity according to God's word in our hearts. That means that this is to say that Christ is a better priest. It can be tested. It's open to scrutiny. It's something that you can put up to the light and see if it's correct or not. It's evident. It's clear. It can be tested when examined and pass the test That's how evident it is that Christ is better. It means this God has spoken on the issue. God has spoken clearly on the issue. God has made it plain that Christ is sufficient. Now, I think that that brings up two questions. Because of the difficult nature of the book of Hebrews in and of itself, it sometimes says that something's clear, and maybe it's not so clear. If it's so clear, if it's so evident, why does the unbeliever not see what the Scripture tells us is evident? I began by saying that every culture, every people group worships, and in all of those places of worship, and all of those people that worship, there's always some sort of holy man that's there. Something's revealed in their heart, but the fall has darkened their mind. You see, every human individual will worship, but only with the special light of God's revelation will they worship the one true God. But there's those that have the word of God, yet still refuse to believe. Jesus says they... they, do not have eyes to see, that they do not have ears to hear. But I think the best testimony of this comes from John. It says in 1 John, in John 1, chapter 1, verse 9, the true light, this is speaking of Christ, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. Now, what does a light do? A light shines in the darkness. A light reveals things. A light is apparent. A light is something you see. A light, if you will, is clear and evident. It's a light. 
That's what a light does. It's something everyone can see. It's something that you cannot deny. This light, verse 10 of John 1, it says, He was in the world and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. That's an amazing statement that Christ, through whom the world was made, comes into the world by way of human flesh as a man and is the light of the world. He is the salvation of the world. He is the only hope of the world. The one to whom you think everyone would say, He's here. Here, he's a light. But yet, what does it say? It says the world that he created did not know him, but yet they worshipped. Yet they had priests. Yet they had their holy men to represent and mediate on their behalf. But when the true mediator comes, who is a light shining in darkness, people cling to their darkness rather than recognizing the light. Verse 11 says, He came to His own, that is, He came to the Jewish people, and His own people did not receive Him. His own people did not receive Him, but rejected Him. Even though Scripture tells us it is evident, it is yet clearer still, it is something that can be tested. Verse 12 says, But to all who did receive Him, who believed in His name, He gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but born of God. This is why Jesus later tells Nicodemus in just two chapters later that you must be born again, that you will have ears to hear and eyes to see. You see, all people are searching for some priest, some form of priest, some form of atonement, but because of their fallen nature, they seek it in idolatry. The light's in their present, and, it's, and they cannot see it. It's so clear. But if it's so clear and so evident, why then, this is the second question, we can see now why it's not so clear to unbelievers, but now what about believers? If it's evident... And it needs to be told to us that it's evident. If it's so clear and so evident, why were the Hebrews doubting it? Why in difficult times does your gaze move from the perfect Son of God to the worldly, the earthly anxieties that grip your life and you lose sight of the light of Christ? If it's so evident, why is it that it needs to be repeated to us? Why is it that we struggle with remembering that Christ is sufficient, that Christ is enough? If it's so evident, if it's so clear, why is it that we struggle with the sufficiency of Christ as Christians, as these Hebrews were themselves struggling with the sufficiency of Christ? Why is it so difficult, yet Scripture says it's so clear? Well, praise be to God, Scripture does tell us why. Let me give you just a couple of reasons. Sometimes we take our gaze off of the perfect Son of God and we get consumed with the things of the world. 1 John chapter 2, verse 16 for says, All that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father but is from the world. That is a, a direct parallel to what Eve faced in the garden when she was tempted with the fruit and Adam, her husband, was there with him, her. That rather than worshiping the Creator, the creation becomes more appealing to us. 
That is not of the Father. The concerns of the world, the concerns of this world, when they become front and center in our life, they take our eyes off of Christ and they take and focus our eyes directly on that forbidden fruit that we're told not to eat of. And we become consumed with it. And it takes our eyes off of Christ. And then what's no longer so evident to us is that Christ is sufficient because we have to fill our hearts with something else because we think we're lacking something rather than seeing that Christ is enough. There's another thing, and that is this, is that we can pull away from God's intended means of growing and keeping our eyes on the Lord. That's a big one. What is God's intended means? Well, confessions oftentimes speak of God's means of grace, and that is the gathering of the saints, the worship that God has prescribed according to His Word and how we're to gather and how we're to worship Him. Those are God's intended means of grace, and part of that is our fellowship with one another. We read this in Hebrews that we are not to neglect the meeting together as the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. And that, that idea of the day drawing near indicates that these, these Hebrews, they were facing struggles in life, but some of them were neglecting the gathering, and because of that neglecting their gathering, look at it, it says they're not able to do. They're not able to encourage one another. God's intended means of our growth is through the fellowship that we have and we experience and we enjoy in a local church. In one of the warning passages of Hebrews, we actually read that God's intended means of keeping us faithful is actually the fellowship of the church. And we see in Hebrews chapter 3, verse 12, in this warning passage, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. That's saying, this is the warning. Be careful here that you don't fall away. So what is God's means that we don't fall away, that we don't take our eyes off the sufficiency of Christ, that we don't forget to see what is so evident that God has made so clear? Well, verse 13 says, But exhort one another every day as long as it is called today. For this purpose, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sins. In other words, God's intended means so that it is always before our eyes and always in our mind and heart that Christ is sufficient, is the gathering of the saints together. And it's this that we encourage one another. That we encourage one another. This this is why being part of a local body of believers is essential to your Christian walk. Sometimes the cares of the world cause us to take our eyes off Christ, sometimes because we neglect the gathering of the saints. And another reason sometimes it's not always so evident to us is because we struggle with sin. Paul writes, 
In Galatians chapter 5 and verse 16, he says, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you wanted to do. In other words, sometimes we go through seasons of of sin and, and neglect, And what does that do to us? Is that evidence of the Spirit working in us? Or is that evidence of the flesh working in us? And when the flesh is working in us, that is opposed to the Spirit. And when we're in that season, what we have done is we have taken our eyes off of Christ. And we've filled it with something else. Whatever that something else is. I think these are all examples of why we forget, why it's not always evident to us. We do forget, don't we? We do forget about the sufficiency of Christ. We do not always put Christ first, and we have to have God's Word remind us this is very clear. This is evident. Christ is sufficient. Christ is a sufficient priest. Christ is a better priest. He is a better mediator. Why is he better? Why is it clear? The whole point of this passage then becomes this. He is better because he is eternal. Because he is eternal. It says this is when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek. And again, we come back to Melchizedek, and this mysterious character. He did not have a genealogy. We know nothing of him other than he was a priest appointed by God outside of the Mosaic Law, which had not even yet been put in place, established. And that he is a priest appointed directly by God, that he knows the one true God, And Christ is the one that comes in that order in his, you'll notice the word, in his likeness. It's that resembling that's used in chapter 7, verse 3. It means a similarity. William Gouge, the Puritan, in his massive commentary on Hebrews, says this of that word similarity. He says, the likeness of Christ to Melchizedek was as the likeness of a body to the shadow. That's how we should understand that word of similarity. Christ was in the order, in the manner of Melchizedek, but they were not the same. Melchizedek came and went, but what we see here is Christ remains forever. I want you to notice the word arises in verse 15. This is a crucial word for understanding the permanency of Christ. Because it introduces a present and continuous priesthood. He has arisen and stays that way. He has been placed as a priest. He is a priest and continues as a priest. That does two things. That ends the Levitical priesthood. 
but also ensures that a new one will never come. A new one will never come. And this, this begins to become even clearer in verse 16, where we read, Who has become a priest, that is Christ, has become a priest, not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. That Levitical priesthood of the Old Testament, they became priests by nature of being born into it. So if you were the son of a priest, you would become a priest. Like many years ago, if your father was a blacksmith, guess what you were going to be? You were going to be a blacksmith. Well, in the priesthood, if your father was a priest, you would then become a priest. That was the primary qualification. That was God's law concerning the matter that governed the priesthood. You have to be of the tribe of Levi, and to be a priest, a high priest, you have to be of the line of Aaron. It was a legal requirement concerning bodily defense, or descent, excuse me. And I love the way the King James brings out the original language, and it calls it a carnal commandment. This was a literally a fleshly commandment that God had given. And when you hear the word flesh in Scripture, it oftentimes contains a negative connotation. That's not to say that the law or the commandment that God gave was to be looked at in a negative light. It's just to simply show, by contrast, the weakness of the law. It was a fleshly law versus an indestructible life that is something that cannot be destroyed. That's the contrast The priests of Levi were put in place by law, a fleshly law, by nature of being born into it. Christ, though, is a priest by nature of a life that cannot be destroyed. It's an eternal life, a life that continues forever. Christ's priesthood was not marked by the things of the Aaronic priesthood, but rather by resurrection and eternal life. Now, how is, that chase, how is that after Melchizedek? Well, Melchizedek, we're never told that he has an offspring by which he has a priestly son, which means his priesthood was a forever priesthood that Christ himself takes. There's a few implications of this I want us to think about. The first is this, is theologically... I want us to think through this theologically for a second. Christ is the eternal Son of God. He's the eternally begotten Son of God. By nature of His deity, He is eternal. He's without beginning. He is without end. Christ is eternal. He was resurrected and ascended to the right hand of the Father. And because of the fact that he is eternal, he will be forever an eternal priest. That's a theological way of looking at it. We see this picture of his priesthood in chapter 8. Verse 1 says, Now the point in what we are saying is this, We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. That is his priesthood. And that he will never cease to be. 
Most commentators note that when, according to 1 Corinthians 15, when Christ hands the kingdom over to his Father, that will be the end and the need of the priesthood and the covenant. And so it's eternal. It's a forever priesthood in the sense that the new covenant lasts. But there's a second thing other than the theological. This contrast shows us between a fleshly commandment and an indestructible life. It shows us the things that are weak versus things that are not. Flesh, which deteriorates, indestructible life, which does not. We're right to focus in on the eternality of Christ, that Christ is eternal, but there's another point in this, is the fleshly commandment was weak, but an indestructible life speaks of God's power. It speaks of his power as a high priest, that he is all powerful, that there is no limitation, there is no limit, there is no way to measure his power as a priest. He's eternal, he's all-powerful, and he is our priest. We could just close the book and say that tells us why he's sufficient. But there's something else about this, as one is external and the other is spiritual and internal. The priesthood of the Old Testament was outside, it was fleshly, it was described in fleshly terms. There was oil, there was incense, there was all of these things taking place. It was all external, but Christ is spiritual and His priestly work is otherworldly. Christ doesn't just go into the presence of God once a year, but actually resides and always and will forever reside in the presence of the Father representing His people. What does that mean for you and I? It means this, as we have an immovable high priest that reigns forever. Why would we look back? He is our rock. As we sang this morning, the the lyrics of Martin Luther penned after Psalm 46, we have a mighty fortress as our God. The things of this world pass, as Luther says, but His Word remains forever. He is our refuge, He is our safety, He is our sufficient high priest. And here's the beauty of this, is Christ is always with His people by His Spirit. What did we read when we started this sermon this morning is that God walked with His people. He made a means to meet with His people by way of a tabernacle, then by way of a temple. And the people continued to fail. And they could never actually truly experience the presence of God with them. But what does Christ promise to you? Before Christ ascends, what is it that He promises to His disciples? He says, I will be with you forever. That's something that no fleshly priest could ever bring about. And for Christ to say that He will be with us forever is to say that by His Spirit, we are with God and walking with God just as Adam walked with God in the cool of the day. It's amazing that when 
the disciples were distraught over Christ leaving them, Christ says to them, actually, I'm giving you something better. And I won't give it to you unless I depart from you. I must depart from you so that I can give you something that's better. And that is my presence by my spirit. Now, if you and I were to ask the question, who would we rather have, the Holy Spirit, or have Christ Jesus sitting right here physically before us? We would almost all say, we want Christ before us physically sitting here. But Jesus says it's better if I send my Spirit with you than I'm always with you. He never leaves you. He never forsakes you. He never ceases to walk with His people. He is always standing on your behalf. He is always there interceding for you. He's never to not be found, but is always present on your behalf. If you are in Christ, there's never a moment that Christ is not with you and interceding for you. Ever. He's eternal. He's all-powerful. And he does that for you. He's a priest forever, it says in verse 17. Now think about this for a second. It's almost as as if our author is asking these Hebrews, why would you look back to the old priesthood? What did you receive in the old covenant? Let me just survey some of this with you. I was told this morning by one of the deacons I have an extra hour this morning. In Numbers chapter 11, we read this in verse 1 through 3. Wonderful account of Moses. And we read this, it says, And the people complained in the hearing of the Lord about their misfortunes. And when the Lord heard it, his anger was kindled, and the fire of the Lord burned among them and consumed some outlying parts of the camp. So here's what's happening is God has rescued his people. God has fed his people. God has given his people everything that they need. What do they do? They begin to complain. And God's wrath begins to be poured out upon the people, and some people start to get taken out by that wrath. Rightfully so. Panic ensues because people are dropping dead as God's wrath, as the fury of God's wrath is being poured out upon the camp, those people. And then what we read is this priestly action. Then the people cried out to Moses, and Moses prayed to the Lord, and the fire died down. What was Moses doing? He was interceding. He was mediating on behalf of his people before God. What a wonderful picture. What a wonderful picture of of what he does on their behalf. But the thing is, is this is when you get to Deuteronomy 34, you read these words, Moses died. Moses died. You think about Samuel, how he was called after the disastrous priesthood of Eli and Eli's sons, Samuel's called to be a priest and was a faithful priest to God. 
But then you read this, when Samuel became old, he made his sons judges over Israel. The name of his firstborn was Joel, and the name of his second, Abiah, and they were judges in Beersheba. Yet his sons did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. They follow after Samuel because they were born of Samuel. What happened to the good priesthood of Samuel? It became perverted. His sons were not like him. You see, a priesthood of the Old Covenant by birth did not guarantee of a faithful priest. And if you did get a faithful priest, what do you know about that faithful priest? He's still a sinner, and he still dies. Just because they were of the genealogy, and just because they were set aside as a priest did not make them actually faithful. It did not make them sufficient. I think of, in, by way of example and illustration, I think of the great Oliver Cromwell. Oliver Cromwell was became what was called the Lord Protector of England after Charles I was executed. Oliver Cromwell rose to power in England and began to subdue all of Europe. They called it Cromwell's Apocalypse. He was an incredible leader. He was an incredible military strategist and conqueror and a faithful man of God. And when Cromwell got near the end of his life, well, his son Richard was put in that place, but Richard just wanted to farm. The son's not always like the father, is what I'm trying to say. And so because it was a genealogical thing, did not guarantee a good priest, and then when you got one, the priest just kept dying. That's what you do, right? That's the one thing we're all guaranteed is death. So a priest rises and a priest dies. But our great high priest, he died and rose again from the dead. And he ascended. And now on our behalf, mediates. And he does this forever. Christ does not die. He has an indestructible life. And he's faithful. He's perfect in his obedience on our behalf. That's the evidence that Christ is a sufficient priest. But then it comes by way of testimony. In other words, we understand this because God's word tells us this. Look at what it says. For it is witness, verse 17, of him, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. That's a quotation from Psalm 110, verse 4. In other words, God prophesied that there would come another priest. God himself says that there would be one. It's after the order of Melchizedek. And the order, it's, it's a Greek word from which we get our word uh, taxonomy, which means an order of something. It's a, it means he's a kind, he's a type. It means that Christ is a priest in the same manner that Melchizedek was a priest. And David saw this when he penned 
Psalm 110, that there would come another priest. And the fact that there was a prophecy of another priesthood not sanctioned by the law when the law was still active tells us that the old system was for one purpose, to point us to something entirely new, to point us to something entirely better, to point us to something that is sufficient, something that is no longer the shadow, but the actual body of what it was supposed to represent. That is to say that in Christ, the old is gone and behold, the new is come. That is to say that the old just simply pointed to something that was perfect because itself was imperfect. Christ is a sufficient priest. He has accomplished what was given of him by the Father. He came as a man, the second Adam, to fulfill what the first Adam could not fulfill. He lived perfectly according to the law. He fulfilled all of his father's desires, every single one of them. It pleased him to do the will of his father. It pleased him to go to the cross and offer himself as a sacrifice. It pleased him to bear our sin. Christ was not a begrudging victim. But Christ himself marched to the cross, to his own death, obedient to his Father. And he did this as a representative on behalf of his people. In other words, he was tasked by the Father to live the life that Adam failed to live. You see, Adam was our representative, and Adam failed, plunging us all into sin and imputing sin to us. Christ comes as a new representative and accomplished the plan and now mediates on our behalf. Heidelberg Catechism says this, He is our mediator, and with His innocent and perfect holiness, He removes from God's sight my sin, my sin since I was conceived. Is Christ a better priest? Is Christ a sufficient priest? Do we need more than Christ? Is Christ enough for your heart? Is Christ enough for you? Yes, He is. And if you are in Christ, here's the good news for you. Christ is enough. Christ is sufficient for you. You don't need to look anywhere else. Because everywhere else, things die. And are imperfect. But Jesus is our perfect high priest. And so will you look unto our perfect high priest and will you receive his comfort, his mediation, and will you receive his perfect life that he lived because he offers it to you. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ and his perfect sacrifice. He is our perfect high priest. He is the one that stands on our behalf before you always. And Father, we praise you for your graciousness to us that you would save a sinful people such as us and that you would send your Son to shed his blood and offer his perfect life instead of ours. 
Father, I pray that these truths will comfort us to remember that Christ is forever our priest. That Christ is our priest by way of an indestructible life. I pray that these truths would carry us through this journey of life, this sojourning that we have, that this would carry us through the day and through the weeks to come and until we draw near to you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.